Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is um, Alan Manning. Um, I'm currently the head of the economics department uh, here at LSE. And I'm just going to uh, chair today's talk uh, by John Lanchester, uh, which is um, about his new book called um, Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay. Is that right? That's right. But he's also going to talk, I think, a bit more generally about uh, how economics uh, looks to an outsider. Um, so John is um, an award-winning novelist and journalist, and I think sort of, as perhaps he may explain, um, came to um, writing about the credit crunch, um, originally as background for uh, a novel he was thinking of writing, and then decided perhaps that this was actually the best story to be told. I'm not quite sure if he thinks that way. Um, so... And as you'd expect with that kind of very varied background, it's a book that, um, you know, it's not just like written by an economist like me, just with a very narrow, boring background. So even if you, um, you know, open the first page of the book, you're going to find there's a quote there from Keynes and there's a quote there from Davidson Hubbins. And I suspect, uh, looking at the young faces um, here today, that those are two thinkers that perhaps um, many of you may not even have heard of, let alone uh, studied. Um, so uh, without more ado, I think I'm going to hand over to John. He's going to talk for about 35 minutes or so, I think, and then we're going to have uh, questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alan. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I should start by saying I had a... Um, an important event this week. I had my, I've got my first ever pair of very focal lenses. Which are, a lot of you there are too young to know what that means. But um, uh, so if I start swaying backwards and forwards and looking as if I'm struggling to read my text and all that, it's uh, it's to do with myopia and, and not tequila. Um, it's a great honour to be here. I think it's quite possible that in the entire history of the LSE, you've never had a speaker who knows less about economics than I do. Um, so that's what I'm going to talk about, the condition of economics as it seems from outside and the things non-economists and economists have to say to each other. Um, I should start by showing where my interest in the subject began. In uh, 2005, in the latter part of 2005, I started writing a novel set in London in the present. And um, rather than banging on about what I tried to do in the book, I'm going to read you a piece of the unpublished book. Um, which is something I've never, ever done before. But um, desperate times demand desperate measures. Um, I'd like to tell you what the truth is called, but um, what the book is called, but in fact, I'm afraid I don't quite know. It was going to be called Capital, but um, I've abandoned that because it seems too on the nose as a title. That's the writer's term for something that's too literal and too direct. So it doesn't have a title, but anyway, this is the, the opening of the book. Portland Street is an ordinary-looking road in South London. Most of the houses in the street are the same age. They were built by a property developer in the late 19th century during the boom that followed the abolition of the tax on brick in the mid-1850s. The developer hired a Cornish architect and Irish builders and the street was constructed over a period of 18 months. The houses are two stories high 
and no two are identical because the architect and his workmen put tiny variations in them to do with the shape of the windows or the chimneys or the detailing of the brickwork. Once you notice this, it's pleasing to look at the buildings and spot the small differences. The houses were built for a specific market. The idea was that they would appeal to lower middle class families willing to live in an unfashionable part of town in returns, return for chance to live in a terraced house of their own. In those days, that meant a house large enough to have room for servants. For its first years, the houses were mainly lived in not by solicitors or barristers or doctors, but the people who worked or clerked for them. Not artists and actors, but the respectable, aspirational, no longer poor. Over the next decades, the demographics of the street wobbled up and down in age, up and down in class, up and down in prosperity, as it became more or less popular with young families and as the area moved up and down in its turn. For some decades, from the end of the First World War through to the 1960s, it was predominantly a working class area. During that time, the area was bombed during the Second World War, but Portland Street was unaffected until 1945, when a V-2 rocket hit and destroyed two houses in the middle of the street. The gap stayed there like a pair of missing front teeth, looking very strange, until a double-fronted modern house with balconies and French windows, looking very strange amid the surrounding Victorian architecture, was built there in 1959. During the 50s, four houses in the street were lived in by the first ethnic minority ever to come to the road, families recently arrived from the Caribbean, all of whose breadwinning fathers worked for London Transport. At the end of that decade, a small, irregularly shaped patch of grass at the corner of Portland Street was concreted over and a one-up, one-down corner shop was built there. It would be hard to put your finger on the exact point when Portland Street began its climb up the economic ladder. A conventional answer would be to say that it tracked the change in Britain's prosperity, emerging from the dowdy chrysalis of the late 1970s and transforming into a vulgar, loud butterfly of the Thatcher decades and the long boom that followed them. But that's not how, quite how it seemed to people who lived in the street, not least because the people who lived in the street changed too. As house prices rose slowly, the working classes, both indigenous and immigrant, cashed in and moved out, looking to find bigger houses, more quiet, and a higher percentage of people like themselves. The new arrivals tended to be more middle class, with husbands who worked at decently paid but not spectacular jobs, and wives who stayed at home and looked after the children, because these houses were still, as they always had been, popular with young families. Then, as prices rose and times changed, the new arrivals were families in which both parents worked and children were in childcare either in the home or out of it. Now people began to do up the houses, not in the ad hoc way which had happened over previous decades, but with systematic makeovers in the knocking through open plan style which became fashionable in the 70s and never really went away. Somebody in the street was always doing up a house. There was never a time when there weren't skips outside builders' vans hogging the road, and all the banging, crashing, drilling, pounding, roaring, and turned-up transistor radios of builders and scaffolders. The activity slowed down a little after the housing crash of 1988, but began to pick up again ten years later. By now, 2005, it's usual for two or three houses in the street to be being undergoing some sort of major renovation at the same time. The current fashion is for people to install basements at a cost, usually, of about £100,000. 
But as more than one of the people digging out the foundation of their houses likes to point out, although the basements cost £100,000, they also add at least that much to the value of a house. So looked at from a certain point of view, and because many of the new residents worked in the City of London, this is a popular point of view, the basement conversions are free. All this is part of a big change in the nature of Portland Street. Over its history, almost anything that could have happened in the street has happened. Many, many people have fallen in and out of love. A young girl has had his first kiss. An old man has exhaled his last breath. A solicitor on his way back from the underground station has looked up at the sky, swept blue by the wind, and had a sudden sense that this life cannot possibly be all and that it's not possible for consciousness to end with the end of life. Babies have died of diphtheria, and people have shot up heroin in bathrooms, and young mothers have cried with their overwhelming sense of fatigue and isolation, and people have planned to escape, and people have schemed for their big break, and people have vegged out in front of televisions, and set fire to their kitchens by forgetting to turn off the chip pan, and fallen from ladders, and experienced everything that can happen in the run of life birth and death and love and hate and happiness and sadness and complex feeling and simple feeling and every shade of emotion in between. Everything that could have happened has happened. Now however, history had sprung an astonishing plot twist on the residents of Portland Street. For the first time in history, almost everybody who lived in the street was rich. That was now true. In fact, everyone who lives in Portland Street is rich, and the thing which makes them rich was the very fact that they lived in Portland Street. They were rich simply because of that fact, because all of the houses in Portland Street, as if, magic, as if by magic, were now worth millions of pounds. This caused a strange reversal. For most of its history, the street had been lived in by more or less the kind of people it was built for, the aspiring not too well off. They were happy to be there, and living there was part of a busy and determined attempt to do better, to make a good life for themselves and their families. But the houses were the backdrop to their lives. They were an important part of life, but they were a set where events took place, rather than a principal character in their own right. Now, however, the houses have become so valuable to people who already live in them, and so expensive for people who've recently moved into them, that they have become central actors in their own right. This happened at first slowly, gradually, as average prices crept up through the lower hundred thousands. And then, as people from the financial services industry discovered the area, and house prices in general began to rise sharply, and people began to be paid huge bonuses, bonuses that were three or four times their national annual pay, bonuses which were big multiples of the national average salary, and a general climate of hysteria affected everything to do with house prices, then, suddenly, prices began to go up so quickly that it was as if they had a will of their own. It began to be all right for people to talk about house prices all the time. The topic came up in conversation within the first minutes of people speaking to each other. When people met, they held off the subject of house prices with a conscious sense of restraint and gave in to the desire to talk about it with relief and within minutes. It was like Texas during the oil rush except that instead of sticking a hole in the ground to make fossil fuel shoot up out of it, all people had to do was sit there and imagine the cash value of their homes rattling upwards so fast that you couldn't see the figures go round. Once the parents had gone off to work and the children off to school, 
You saw fewer people in the street in the day, except builders, but the houses had things brought to them all day. As the houses had got more expensive, it was as if they had come alive and had wishes and needs of their own. Vans from Berry Brothers and Rudd brought wine. There were two or three competing firms of dog walkers. There were florists, Amazon parcels, personal trainers, cleaners, plumbers, yoga teachers, all day long going up to the houses like supplicants and then being swallowed up inside them. There was laundry, there was dry cleaning, there was FedEx and UPS, there were dog beds, printer ribbons, garden chairs, vintage film posters, same-day DVD purchases, eBay coups, eBay whims and impulse buys, mail-order bicycles. People came to the houses to beg and to sell things, towels for the homeless, utility company salesmen. The tradesmen and trainers and craftsmen disappeared into the houses and came out when they were finished. The buildings were now like people, and rich people at that, imperious, with needs of their own that they were not shy about servicing. There were builders in the street all the time servicing the houses, doing up lofts and kitchens and knocking through and adding on, and there was never a time when there weren't at least two skips parked in the street and at least two sets of scaffolding. The new craze for doing up basements had conveyors of dirt flowing into skips from beneath buildings. And because the earth was compressed by the weight of the houses above them, as it was dug up, it expanded to five or six times its original size. So there was something bizarre, even sinister, about this digging, as if the earth was spreading, vomiting, rejecting its own excavation, and far, far too much of it seemed to come out of the ground, as if there was something fundamentally unnatural about reaching down in the earth to take up more space, and the digging would seem to go on forever. Having a house in Portland Street was like being a casino in which you were guaranteed to be a winner. If you already lived there, you were rich. If you wanted to move there, you had to be rich. It was the first time in history this had ever been true. Britain had become a country of winners and losers, and all the people in the street, just by virtue of living there, had won. Uh, that's the end of the novel bit. Uh, no, there are two things you should know about that. The first thing is, as I say, I began writing it in 2005, um, four and a bit years ago. I was reckoning the book would take me about four or five years to write. Um, I wish novels didn't take me that long to write. And to be honest, I'm not quite sure what they do. Uh, but the sad fact is that that is what they do. Um, as you can probably tell from the opening, it's a story about a boom and for its necessary shape, it depends on the subsequent bust. That's where the story and the characters go, and it's built into the shape of the book that what goes up must come down. The story has the shape of an arc, and for the arc to be there, there had to be some form of economic collapse. It's implicit in the trajectory, or rather, it is the traje trajectory. No bust, no book. Um, it follows from that that I was betting four or five years of my working life on the fact that there would be some serious form of economic collapse. That might seem reckless, but it seemed very obvious to me that there was going to be some kind of crash. No doubt that was partly because I'd lived through a, a crash before. Marcus Aurelius said uh, that an intelligent person of 40 has seen everything that can possibly happen in the world. Um, up until the credit crunch, I used to think that was right. Certainly in my case, I'd lived through both a recession and a property crash which saw prices decline on average by about 35%. 
though the effect was hidden by the impact of inflation, which ate the value of people's houses so they didn't have to quite admit what was happening. Um, I bought a flat in 1987, the peak of the last boom, and about a decade later it had only just crawled back to its original worth. So I was well aware of the fact that busts do tend to follow booms. What this meant was that in parallel with writing my novel, I was observing the movements of the economy, first on through the upward motion of the roller coaster, and then steeply down the other side. That's not the subject of my book, it's the backdrop to it, but it left me fascinated by what was happening in the real world in in parallel with my fictional world. Uh, The thing that seemed of consuming interest to me was that there was this incredibly, blindingly obvious disaster about to happen, which apart from a few hacks and commentators, everyone seemed oblivious to. And um, then in the autumn of 2007, I, I started to write on a piece for, um, about banking published in the London Review of Books and said, um, I, and Byron once said, it's a terrible affectation to quote your, not to quote yourself, so I'm going to quote myself. If our laws are not extended to control the new kinds of super powerful, super complex and potentially super risky investment vehicles, they will one day cause a financial dr- disaster of global systemic proportions. Um, and then I return to the subject when I finish the draft of the novel. Um, What I usually do when I finish a book is stick it in a drawer and leave it there for a few months um, so that I can go back to it with a clear perspective. And normally I promise myself that I'll use the time doing something constructive, like, you know, take up Pilates or learn German or, um, you know, do a 10K charity run, and instead spend four months looking out the window and then realise that I've just wasted four months and go back and and finish the book. Um, And... um, that usually see with horror that you know I think I've written something set in the contemporary world, but you know I've actually written an 800-page book set in a school for wizards. Um, and this time I did different. And when I finished the novel, started writing this account, whoops, of what seemed to me, as I said, the most interesting thing to happen in my lifetime. Certainly the most e- interesting economic thing, the credit crunch. So my motives were twofold. First, I was fascinated by what had happened. I think it's an amazing story, full of human interest and drama, one whose byways of mathematics, economics and psychology are both central to the story of the last decades and mysteriously unknown to the general public. And that was my second reason for wanting to write about it. We heard a lot about the two cultures of science and arts recently. We heard particularly large amount it in 2009 because it was the 50th anniversary of the speech where C.P. Snow first used the phrase. But I'm not sure the two cultures idea applies to science and arts as much as it used to. Um, for instance, there's a lot of good popular writing about science, and I think it's easier for the general reader to educate themselves about the fundamentals of science than uh, it ever has been. I mean, you can't actually go and do quantum physics in the comfort and safety of your own home, but you can read books which give you the, the fundamentals. Um, it seems to me there's a much bigger gap between the world of finance and economics and the general public and that there's a need to narrow that gap, um, not least because democracy implies the idea of an informed electorate. I'm not sure that's something we have in this area. And also there's a risk that the financial industry ends up becoming a kind of priesthood that administers to its own mysteries and is feared and resented by everyone else. Lots of bright, literate, well-educated, functioning people, those are four different things, by the way, Um, have no idea about all sorts of economic basics of a type that financial insiders just take as elementary knowledge about how the world works. When the financially literate talk about interest rates, for example, they're bringing to bear a whole set of linked ideas about inflation, unemployment, 
the cost of borrowing, the exchange rate, the political impact of rising mortgage costs, the conditions of trade for business, the price of exports, the balance of trade and the growth or contraction of the economy. All of that packed in, sorry, into just two words, interest rates. To people who don't, as it were, speak finance, the language can seem impenetrable and the interlocking ideas too complex to grasp or unpack. I've become very preoccupied by this gap. It seems to me that it's a, a real problem. Out in the wider world, we don't know enough about economics and we don't hear enough from economists. I think it may be that economics as a profession is partly to blame. I'm not sure it's making enough of an effort to force economics into daily discourse, the political and journalistic discourse of the day. And that includes an attempt to educate the lay audience. A big part of this, I suspect, is the turn in economics toward mathematics, the mathematicization of the profession, especially in macroeconomics. And it's curiously similar to what's happened in the liberal arts, and especially the subject I studied at university, English literature, where in the academic profession has essentially abandoned the attempt to communicate with an audience larger than itself. When I worked as an editor at the London Review of Books, pretty much all we did um, in the attempt to find new writers could be boiled down to the formula of trying to find experts willing to talk to a non-expert audience. That sounds like a simple formula, but it's surprisingly hard to do in many fields. And uh, just from experience as a commissioning editor, literary criticism was one and economics was another. This may feed into uh, the reasons why, in the run-up to the credit crunch, macroeconomics did not have a good war. After all, the whole subject was born out of the Great Depression and the attempt in studying it to prevent the recurrence of anything similar. It's more or less against the law to praise the media for anything ever, but the fact is that quite a few print journalists did speak up in public about the risks building up and the vulnerability of the global financial system. Larry Elliott in The Guardian, Martin Wolf and Gillian Tett in the FT, and uh, even The Economist, which is often overly gung-ho, um, did warn, the, warn about the dangers. It may be that, um, as uh, the American judge Richard Posner has said, um, journalists have a built-in affinity for drama and collapse, and they like stories about disaster. Um, he, he said that the press thrives on drama, and therefore conflict and alarms, discords and discontinuities. Uh, which is true. I mean, of course, it's also true that there were industrial quantities of market puffing hype and uh, nonsense, a considerable amount of it on television. Um, I can't claim to have been onto this story early, but as I say, once I started looking at it, it was immediately clear that the global financial banking system was facing a structural crisis. If it was clear to me, why wasn't it as obvious to the people in charge of the economy and the people whose job it is to advise them? I wonder if it's something to do with um, what's now been called expert overconfidence, the likelihood of experts in a field to place too high a confidence in their own judgments. It may be that the crucial reason why journalists, some journalists were more alert to the crunch than their betters was because of this expert overconfidence, combined with a reliance on the idea that because a crisis of this sort hadn't happened, it therefore couldn't happen. I also think this was an exacerbated by a belief which is at its basis more theological than economic, and if it had to be put as an axiom, it would probably run as follows. The market cannot create any problem that the market cannot solve. We know now that's not true. Um, there's a sour joke among financial types, referring to uh, city types in particular, referring to the chronic pessimism and downspeak of the dismal science. They say that economists have predicted seven of the last three downturns. Ha, ha, ha. But they certainly didn't predict this one. 
Just to repeat the basic point, a 20% drop in US house prices, not on the face of it all that unlikely a thing, was enough to cause a global banking crisis that nearly destroyed the entire system and a global recession verging on depression. So why wasn't there more uh, apparent awareness of that possibility in the profession? Has it really drifted that far away from the real world? And the short answer from outside it seems to be that with some stellar exceptions, yes, it has. The profession's preference for textbook perfect academic models of phenomena led to it being AWOL during the run-up to the biggest economic crisis since the 1930s. In the words of an American university provost, I have an entire department of economists who can provide a brilliant ex post facto account of what happened, and not a single one of them saw it coming in advance. The crisis exposed the profession as being a little like the British Army at Singapore, with its guns pointed in the wrong direction. I think the underlying reason for this, or I suspect it is, is the mathematicization of macroeconomics. To the outsider, it seems that the field is increasingly preoccupied with developing pseudo-mathematical formulae. These provide models of behaviour which never quite fit what actually happens, in a way which resembles the physical sciences gone wrong. Instead of equations describing reality, macroeconomics produces equations describing ideal conditions and theoretical clarity, the type which never occurs in practice. Many disciplines suffer badly from envy of the physical sciences, of a world in which F equals MV means exactly what it says. And it looks from the outside as if macroeconomics has a particularly bad case of physics envy. My education, as I said, is sketchy to non-existent in this area, so I'm dependent on the kindness of strangers when it comes to understanding the broad history of the field. I asked one, a former academic who runs an investment fund, to explain how this turn had happened and he gave me what is no doubt a cartoon version of the history. In the 60s and 70s, he's an Oxford Don actually, so he talks, in the 60s and 70s, all macroeconomists were Keynesians. That was given a thorough go, and it didn't work, because we ended up with stagflation. Then as a reaction, everyone was a monetarist, and the feeling that was that all became a bit grubby under Thatcher. So they reacted against that by all turning to mathematics, and it's all equations and models, and if you want to read any macroeconomics with real-world statistics in it, you have to read Martin Wolf in the FT. For insiders, that's probably grossly unfair, but as an outsider, it doesn't seem completely inaccurate. Some of this exemplifies what I would argue is the most common mistake of very bright people, the assumption that other people's minds work in the same way that theirs do. Economists see economically determined behaviour wherever they look, it would be such a powerful explanatory tool if it turned out that we all always act rationally from an economic point of view. And if you plug economic assumptions of economic rationality into your view of the world, you come up with all sorts of beautifully elegant explanations of everything, from why there are so many teenage single mothers, because they're taking a rational choice to marry the state, why the bank has got everything wrong in the credit crunch, they were responding rationally to a skewed balance of risks, why the Dutch tulip bubble took place. It was a rational application of greater fool theory, the idea that there'd always be a bigger idiot to buy your overvalued stock. But the trouble is that this version of human conduct isn't sort of what we outsiders call true. To, to non-economists, the assumptions of rational conduct and the mathematically based models which permeate the field often have the appearance at best of toys, entertaining but by definition of limited utility. At worst, they can seem willful delusions, determinedly ignoring reality. The general reader needs no persuading about the influence of non-rational, non-economic forces on economic thinking. 
But the fact that they see that assumption of rationality as self-evidently ridiculous has no effect inside the field. The assumptions of rationality permeate modern economics, and it seems to me one of the reasons the field is sharply contracted in practical usefulness. The mathematization also had obvious and with hindsight catastrophic dangers when it extended to the tools used by investment professionals and banks. As you know, <coughs> um, in banking, maths jocks are known as quants. According to the models in use by the quants, the Black Monday crash of 1987 was a 19-sigma event. Now, as Roger Lowenstein explains in his book about the hedge fund LTCM, that meant that on the basis of the market's historical volatility, had the market been open every day since the creation of the universe, the odds would still have been against it falling that much in a single day. In fact, had the life of the universe been repeated one billion times, such a crash would still have been theoretically unlikely. The defiance of common sense there is really flagrant. If your mathematical model tells you that something is impossible, which is what in practice that degree of improbability does, it's impossible, and then that thing happens, then you know with complete certainty that your model is wrong. It doesn't make sufficient allowance for reality. In this case, the unacknowledged reality was to do with portfolio, computer portfolio insurance, selling all the same stocks at the same time. But it doesn't actually matter what the unacknowledged thing is. It just matters that your model doesn't work because when unexpected things happen, and as every grown-up knows, unexpected things happen all the time, the historically-based mathematical model can't cope. If the Black Monday crash wasn't adequate to make the point, which it evidently wasn't, then it could equally have been made by the Russian bond default of 1998 and the market panic which accompanied that. Now, the 1998 bust was a seven-sigma event, sigma being the unit of standard deviation. That means it should statistically have happened only once every three billion years. And it wasn't the only one. The last decade have seen the market see numerous five, six, and seven-sigma events. Those are supposed to happen, respectively, one day in every 13,932 years, one day in every 4,039,906 years, and one day in every 3,105,395,365 years. And yet, no one concluded from this that the statistical models were bust. The events were unprecedented, but they kept happening over and over again. So unprecedented became the new precedented, but the models didn't change. The, the trouble was that the, the models simply didn't work in a crisis. They worked when they worked, which was most of the time. But then the whole point of them was to assess risks, and some risks, by definition, happen at the edge of known likelihoods. The ultimate absurdities were reached during the early days of the credit crunch. Remember, the basic reality underlying that, people with bad credit histories, who for the most part had lied to get loans, not being able to pay back their mortgages. The evidence shows that by 2005, more than half of all applicants for subprime loans were lying by exaggerating their incomes by more than half. So over 50% lying by over 50%. And these people's mortgage repayments were supposed to be going to generate debt with a triple A bond status at a time when only nine corporations in the USA had triple A status. We'll talk about deliberately ignoring reality. There's a whole industry full of analysts and all any one of them would have had to do to see this disaster in the making Take the lift down from the zillionth floor, take a cab to Penn Station, take a train to anywhere in the United States where subprime lending was taking place, 
and just spend an hour driving around and talking to any community or group involved anywhere in the housing market. And it would have been impossible not to see that the entire industry was driving off a cliff. But they didn't need to do that because the, market, because the models proved that the AAA bonds were safe. I discuss in, in my book the case of a young woman in Baltimore who'd never had a job, who had no income, who'd never paid a utility bill, supposedly making mortgage payments to the trustees of one of these collateralised debt obligations, these pools of debt. Now, how likely would you have thought a problem with that mortgage was? Not, not too unlikely. But by the time the market had finished with its packaging and securitisation and the CDOs and CDSs and the value-at-risk model and the Gaussian copula formulae, all of them explained in the book, by the way, that turned into events which the chief financial officer of Goldman Sachs described like this. We were seeing things that were 25 standard de deviation moves several days in a row. It is almost impossible to put into words how big a number 25 standard deviations is expressed as odds to one. At 20 sigma is 10 times the number of all the particles in the known universe. 25 sigma is the same number but with the decimal point moved 52 places to the right. It's equivalent, a single 25 sigma event is equivalent to winning the national lottery, the UK national lottery, 21 times in a row. That's the probability of one. And Goldman were claiming to experience them several days consecutively. That is so wrong, it is almost impossible to put it into words. It, it shouldn't be humanly possible to be that wrong. And the particularly outrageous thing is when they talk about this, like the, the bank heads in the US talking to Congress, they talk about being unlucky. You know, about a perfect storm, about a hundred-year event. That's, just, that's like saying if you close your eyes and try and walk down the Strand in rush hour and get, keep your eyes shut the whole way and get knocked down by a bus, that's like talking about being unlucky if that happens. It's not unlucky, it's wrong. Remember, what we're talking about here is a drop in house prices causing people with bad credit to have trouble repaying their mortgages. And that was turned into something that was literally the most unlikely thing ever to have happened in the history of the universe. So in all these ways, I think economics can be said to have drifted some distance away from reality. That's a problem. But it's made into a much bigger problem by the fact that reality in the form of the general public returns the favour. Economics has wandered away from us, I think, but we're doing a fair bit of wandering off of our own. I'm not sure that economically knowledgeable fully understand just how ignorant people are about money. And I think the ignorance being rooted in the fact that most people are just very, very reluctant to think about money, ever. People prefer never to think about money. What this means is that the ideal state of most people in relation to economics is not to know anything about it, never to think about it, and to act as if its principles don't apply to them. It's the ideal of the three monkeys who sees no economics, hears no economics, and feels no economics. This was particularly apparent during the boom years. One thing which has been lacking in, in public discourse about the crisis is someone to point out the extent to which we, the public, helped do this to ourselves, both because we allowed our banks and governments to do it, and because we were greedy and stupid. It's not just bankers who've been indulging in greed, short-termism, and fantasy economics. In addition to our stretched mortgage borrowing, our debt which peaked at an average of 170% of household income, Britain has half of all the credit card debt in Europe. That's a horrible fact, and though it's nice to reserve the blame for the banks who made lending too easy, 
the great British public is almost as much to blame. We grew obsessed with the price of our houses, felt richer than we should, borrowed money we didn't have, treated our homes as cash point machines, spent everything on tat, and now that the downturn has happened as it was bound to do, we want someone else to blame. Well, bankers are to blame, but we're to blame as well. And that's just as well, since we're the ones who are going to have to pay. One of the things which is interesting about Iceland, um, and one of the many people who are interested in the credit crunch to have gone to Iceland, um, is the in fact there's so many you know Icelanders basically leaving and the economists are moving in, um, is that because of the size of the country, it's a population about the same population as Brighton, 320,000. It means that all these issues are dramatised with particular clarity. Um, and I spoke to two young people who'd lost their homes as a result of the crash. She'd been at the school with the 28-year-old who ran the bank that had gone broke. Um, that's the kind of thing that happens in Iceland. And one man said to me, it was 30 or 40 people who did this, and the rest of us are having to pay. Well, that's true. But it was also the case that the whole country was caught up in the fever. And someone else said, now that the crash has happened, we don't think it's normal to take a plane to Milan and go shopping in the Via Lanate at the weekend. Well, looking at that from outside, you have to ask, how did a weekend shopping in Via Lanate ever come to seem normal for people who work in a cafe in Reykjavik? But some of the phenomena we saw in the boom here weren't so different, and the public obliviousness to cheap money played an important role. None of this would matter if we didn't need economics, but the fact of the matter is at the moment we deeply do. I think that economic analysis and economic thinking is going to be crucial to solving some of the problems that we were facing not just nationally but globally. There was a, a spectacular example in the aftermath of the crunch when it took exceptional measures on the part of the central banks. Um, so in the case of the US, in the US informed by the HappyCo incidents that um, the chairman of the Fed had made a lifelong study of the Great Depression and was therefore perhaps the best qualified person on earth to lead the charge against its recurrence. Macroeconomics did a lot to redeem itself, I think, thanks to Mr. Bernanke and others. But the unfortunate fact is that people don't realise that. The crash seemed unnatural. The recovery seemed like a resumption of normality instead of an extraordinary feat of financial engineering, brinkmanship, and wartime levels of stimulus. Because people don't realise that, they don't realise how precarious the situation is as the stimulus is unwound. And they would be, I suggest, highly reluctant to pick up any equivalent bill at any time in the near future no matter how badly that bill might need picking up. But the problems and challenges are bigger even than those presented by the immediate aftermath of the crisis. Over the next decades, we face a critical situation in which the growth-based economics, which are at the heart of all political and governmental and economic planning, the growth-based models which are central to the way the world is run, are for the first time hitting the limits of what we can sustain. We face infinite demand with finite resources. The entire world would like to have the equivalent of a middle-class, first-world lifestyle. That isn't possible, not at our current level of technological development. It may be that we'll be able to solve our resource problems with as-yet-unguessed new technologies, but that solution isn't here yet, nor for the foreseeable future. Economics is going to be crucially important to this difficult passage the whole world is facing, but it's going to need to be an economics close to something that Adam Smith or Karl Marx would have recognised, based in a study of the real world and drawing conclusions which report back to that world. The um, title of this lecture, Economics Nil Reality One, is something of a cheat because in the football match between reality and economics, economics can never win. No field of human knowledge or endeavour can prevail over reality 
which has the ultimate home field advantage. The real will always have the upper hand over any attempt to study it or model it. I would suggest, though, that there have been times in recent years when that's what some branches of economics have tried to do, build models and formulate equations which are purer and better than what actually happens. I would humbly suggest that the profession abandon that ambition and take a cue from some other forms of human understanding. You can't beat reality, but you can stand up to it. We need economics to do that. What economics should seek with reality is not defeat and not victory, but a one-all draw. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very uh, much, John. So now we're going to have some time for questions. Um, I think I'm going to take questions in sort of groups of, of, of three or so, perhaps, and perhaps there's going to be mics sort of going around. And perhaps you could just introduce yourselves briefly um, before you ask your question. So first, there. Uh, could you just wait for the mic, actually? Sorry. Hi. Um David, and I just wanted to ask, given your thoughts on economics and the models of all the higher mathematical models which go into physics formally and that, what do you think that a greater understanding for the basic population of economics, even if it's just simple house prices can't rise forever, would have helped given this crisis prevent people from making the mistakes that they did on a big scale, for example? Any other questions at the moment? Um, yes, sorry, there's a gentleman back for that. Yeah. Hi, as a, um, as a professor on sabbatical here at LSE in Cambridge, whose wife wants to buy a piano tear in retirement in London, I really appreciated your <coughs> discourse on Portland Street. <coughs> and then you're telling us why it was, why it was going to happen. But could you fill us in on what's happened on Portland Street? since the global financial crisis happened? Okay. I think there was... Uh... Hi. Uh, Judith Shapiro, LSE. In the years when there wasn't a crisis, what economists, including myself, wanted to believe was that not that we would be able to predict a crisis, but that if it happened, we would not repeat the Great Depression. Now, I admit that it was a white-knuckle ride for me in September and October of uh, 2008. Uh, a friend of mine who's a physicist who works on turbulence says we don't understand turbulence. So if you're in an airplane with him and it goes into clear air turbulence, he gets very nervous. I've told him I felt like that, about fractional reserve banking, but nonetheless, it seems to me that we're through that right knuckle ride, and that the, uh, in rea not completely, not to relax, but that actually the vindication of economics has not been in the forecasting of the crisis, but in the measures that were taken. And I wonder what your reaction is on that. Okay, I think perhaps John. Well, um, in order, I think a basic David's point. I think um, you're quite right. I think. Um, a basic education uh, is very, very important in the, um, you know, house prices can't rise infinitely, um, the sort of realities of what debt is. I mean, I think one of the um, uh, brilliant things that's um, uh, helped get us in this pickle is 
the shift, a shift in attitudes to debt, which was once seen, I mean, I'm not that old, but I can remember when debt was just a bad thing. Um, and I think that the, the stroke of genius was renaming debt as credit. And you call it credit, and people think, oh, I want, I want some of that. Um, and I think, you know, it really is that basic about um, some of the fundamentals that, that you know, that's what, that's what credit is. It means being, being in hoc. Um, I think it's hard to know where the education should start. I imagine it should start in school. Um, David Kynaston, who wrote this wonderful four-volume history of the city of London, um, makes the point in that that under the Soviet Union, um, children started being taught about how communism was supposed to work in, in primary school. Um, and, uh, of, of course, in that case, it was all complete rubbish because the system didn't work at all. It was sort of a fantasy. But the idea of a kind of um, education and economics lasting all the way through the school years, I think, would, would help. Um, and in, in cheeky moments, when, when you think about where it could go, I sometimes think you could put it in religious education. You know, liberal capitalism, a kind of belief system, you could just sort of budge Buddhism and Hinduism up a bit and stick it in the middle. Um, on the, uh, about Portland Street, I'm afraid you'll have to wait for the book to come out. Um, uh, um, I, haven't, uh, I haven't quite decided yet, but as, as I, I did, there is a kind of bust, bust implied in the boom. Um, uh, and uh, there's kind of a trajectory embracing the various characters. Um, uh, but um, uh, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's all under wraps, I'm afraid. Um, um, I'm thinking about livening it up with a subplot about um, a young woman um, and her forbidden love for a sexy vampire. Apart from that, <laughs> apart from that, I can't say anything. And, and the, the final point, uh, Professor Shapiro's point, um, I, I take the point about the white knuckle ride and that we, we steered clear of the abyss. For now, but there's two things I say. Firstly, for now, we think you know we've done the equivalent of it's there are wartime levels of debt and stimulus, and nothing like this has ever been unwound before, and. Um, I think um, you know it might be the end of Act One, might be the end of Act Two. I'm not quite sure we're yet at the end of Act, the Act Three. And the other thing I'd say is that the while the, the measures did work, they have left us with this. I mean, what do we call the, the system we have now, where um, you know the the uh, financial institutions' losses are socialised? It's not capitalism. I mean, it's some bizarre, um, bizarre mutant hybrid um, where the Upside is in private hands, and the downside we own. And you know that is nobody's model of what the world is supposed to be like. So while I think we, um, we, you know, seem fingers crossed to have avoided the um, recurrence of the Great Depression, and you know, appropriate um, congratulations are due on that. Um, I'd say a we're not out of the woods yet, and b we're in a really, uh, we're in a really strange place structurally. Okay, thank you very much. More questions? There's one left. Okay, my name's Daniel. Um, I'm intrigued, you seem to imply earlier that Ben Bernanke is like one of the saviors of, of, of the crisis that we've been through, rather than actually one of the creators of the crisis. And I put it to you, isn't it really, we've, we say that we're over, the abyss has been averted, but hasn't it really just been delayed? It's a bit like trying to stuff paper mache into a dam, hoping that the, the results of the crisis, which have been caused over the last 30 years or so, um, have been stopped. Effectively, all we've done is put it on hold until it un un unravels. The amount of debt is so much and so accumulative that there's no way of ever it being paid back. And really, all we're doing is making up by the day, um, hoping, beyond hope, that this problem will not come back to haunt us in months or years 
or whenever it will be, but clearly it hasn't been resolved. It's supposed to have been put on hold. Uh, hi, I'm Todd Murtha. Uh, I just walked in off the street, actually. Uh, I am a carpenter. Uh, I work in New York, but I, uh, uh, not Portland Street over there, but I, I know the, that street. And, uh, you know, I, I, had, I had a thought while you were talking. I love your talk, by the way. It's very well put. Um, <clears throat> when, you're, when, you, when you do carpentry, it's always nice to work for a rich client because you get to work with all the nice materials and you get to take your time and all that stuff and I, I had a thought when you were talking about um, you know economy and the macroeconomics and how it, it got you know so overblown and you know the, 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 the mathematics went crazy it's almost like these guys are the same thing they just like to work with some you know new thing the way we like to work with good materials but um, you said you didn't know what to call it I know what to call it it's called corruption and um, everybody I mean I don't know if everyone's going to agree with me but it, we all know the world is totally corrupt. Um, the 1% rule the whole world, uh, or whatever you want. I don't know the percentage. You guys probably know better than me. But, and uh, I want to see a total. I don't, I, I, all they did was print money, if I understand fractional reserve banking. And I mean, that's all they did. I mean, it, I could have did that. I mean, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it is funny, but it's like I'm so sick of the way the world works. I mean, I travel a lot, but, you know, I just save money and I go traveling and I see the world. I know how, how it works, I mean, it's just, it's more of a comment I'm making. I'm not a real question. I just think that I'm going to read your book and, uh, you know, we got we to gotta just forget, mo forget money. I don't, why do we even have to print it? I mean, we just, we need to change the whole world, the whole way it's working. I mean, if I, when I look at rich people, like, I just think, you don't, you shouldn't have that much money. Like, I'm just going to take your money. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I think there are a couple of people at the, the back. If we just the, the. Um, you know, my name is Hugh Wenman Smith. I recently gained my PhD in economics here uh, on a subject in urbanisation, which I think is protected from some of your criticism. Your, what you say about certain financial models is uh, certainly well aimed, um, but there's an underlying theme which might appeal more to the novelist in you, which is there's a very strong human element going on. Uh, which I think the previous uh, questioner has referred to to some extent, but it, why did the control mechanisms fail at every step? And there's all sorts of examples of that happening, mm. starting with, for example, Enron. Um, and this is a human thing, and it goes right to the top. If Gordon Brown, as Chancellor in 2007, had called the, called the crash, he would have been lambasted in the press. So that uh, there's a problem about incentives operating at every level of people who might see what's coming but are unable to call it because the incentive isn't there. Okay, I think perhaps we'll take those three and then... Well, in, in, in reverse order, uh, Professor, I think, I think that's right. I mean, the, we, obviously the architecture was of the um, regulatory architecture was wrong. You know, nobody owned the problem of the bubble. Um, that the bank was attending to systemic risks, the FSA was looking after risks in specific firms. And um, I, d I doubt there's a Chancellor of the Exchequer in, in history who would have passed up as much of a free ride as there was because, you know, um, the, the, the magic ability to, you know, increase spending and, and cut taxes at the same time, I think that was just too much of a free lunch. And nobody... Um, uh, I remember once my car broke down and... Um, uh, 
I ended up in an AA garage, and I was very struck by a sign they had pinned to the wall. It said, own the problem. Um, and that was what we needed someone to do, and there wasn't anyone. I think that was an architectural thing. I think the other element of the human, uh, the other human component, you mentioned things like Enron, is when people know they're right, they're very dangerous. And I think the story is absolutely permeated by people who are, who are certain that they're, they're right. I mean, there was an example... Um, one of the things that really stays with me is the thing about the structured investment vehicles that lots of the banks use to hide assets um, and hide lines of credit from their balance sheets. And these are specifically targeted in the Basel rules on banking. You're just, you know, there are laws that address it, and the laws address everything that um, lasts for a year, all lines of credit that exist for a year. So what the banks did with this genius thing, they, um, these structured investment vehicles, every single one of which, by the way, has now blown up and no longer exists, they were set up to last for 364 days. You know, genius. Um, and it's hard to address that if people are that determined. Uh, you know, because the bankers could see why the rules existed, but they just didn't think it applied to them because they knew better. They understood their own capital requirements better than any regulator. And that's a hard thing to fix when people are certain they're in the right. Um, I think the question about um, Bernanke having, having created um, the... Um, the crisis and also, you know, then getting the credit for fixing it. I think there's something in that. Um, it reminds me, I used to write about football back in the distant past, and uh, one of my colleagues um, came back, it was in the days when journalists were always drunk, and he came back after lunch and fell down a hole. Uh, he was trying to get in the back of the offices, the Sunday correspondent. And uh, it was quite a big, it was about 12 feet foot deep, and a policeman helped him out. And um, the policeman who helped him out said, you know, sir, if you hadn't been completely pissed, you'd probably have broken every bone in your body. <laughs> to which my former colleague said, well, the thing is, officer, if I hadn't been completely pissed, I wouldn't have fallen down the hole. <laughs> and um, so, yes, you know, you query how much credit Bernanke gets for fixing it when he was, um, you know, um, he was on duty for the latter part of the, the run-up. I think it's right that um, we don't know where it's going and, um, and that it... But I mainly think the salient point from what you said is that it's not fixed. You know, there's absolutely no reason why uh, something like the credit crunch wouldn't recur. And when you look at long-term capital management, um, dot-com bust, Enron, and then the credit crunch, these gigantic, unprecedented, huge um, cataclysms are manifestly happening more often, and they're bigger. And um, the just the sheer scale of the movement of capital and its speed and um, the fact that the underlying structural things haven't been fixed um, actually makes me scared. Um, uh, it needs fixing and, and I haven't seen the proposal that actually will address that. Um, and finally, to, to Todd, I, I, thinking about what you're saying, I was very struck, I was reading a biography of the British writer Norman Davis and I was very struck by something he, he once said in passing, he says, the history of the world is mainly the story of the rich stealing from the poor. Okay, someone right at the back has been waiting quite patiently, I think. Thanks. Um, two very short questions. The first one, uh, you talked a little bit just now in answer to one of the previous questions about um, how we might make people better able to understand economics. Have you any thoughts on how we might make economics simpler, so to bring that meeting a bit closer from the other direction? Um, and then uh, the other one, do you have thoughts on, on where this diversion of economics from reality first began? Do you see it as something that 
happened in the 1940s or the 1860s or the 1770s or way beyond that even. Be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, sorry. Um, there was someone over there who's been waiting quite a long time. Actually, I, I meant the person just in front of you. <coughs> once upon a time, I studied economics, and I think once upon a time is quite an apt introduction, as it seemed to me that it was all fairy tales, and economists really couldn't predict or tell you what it was going to happen. I liken it to um, predicting when earthquakes are going to happen. Everyone knows there's going to be an earthquake in, in California, but no one can tell you when. Um, and it seems to me that economics is just such an immature science, and econ economists don't admit this, but it is an immature science, even if it is a science, and they just cannot... Um, because of, their, of the problems of not being able to predict irrational and, and even rational human behaviour, that it is um, in it, unable to predict events like the crash. And I think until economists re uh, face up to the fact that they can't predict these things accurately, um, then they're misleading us to think that it is a science which can actually uh, usefully predict these sort of events. Okay, thank you. I think one, somebody up there. Yes, mine's related to one of the earlier questions in terms of the challenges, the purpose, and direction of this profession. It's about what you mentioned about the global economic collapse and the integrity, and something you mentioned about school for, school for wizards. Do you, in your opinion, really believe that after all this analysis, that no one really saw the collapse coming? And have you have actually put it through in your book, the book you've published now? Do you want to take those three and then... Sure. I mean, I think the, um, on the third point, some people did see it coming, um, as, I, as I mentioned. Um, uh, I suppose it overlaps with the second question about the predictive um, issue in economics. I mean, it's a very important point. If, you ca if we can't predict, we're still, we're still obviously going to need economics. Um, but um, the ability to predict is a dangerous thing to promise. Um, and um, the... Um, as I think I said in, in the talk, the, um, a sort of crude outsider's perspective often sort of made, it was much more apparent than it seemed to be. Um, the more informed people be, there was some tropism to see it less clearly. I think that does happen in various fields, and it, and it seems to have happened in the run-up to this one. Um, the point about um, the, um, the making economics simpler... I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know who the people are to write that book. In a funny way, I mean, I've sort of tried to do it with whoops, but I don't really properly know the subject. Um, I think, um, it, you know, it's a very welcome turn that you have with... One of the great things about popular science, which I think is in a very interesting condition at the moment, is that um, a lot of the books are written by people right at the cutting edge of their fields, um, trying to explain their ideas. I haven't quite seen that uh, come through in economics, and uh, I, I would be very welcome if, it, if you did have that. Um, equivalent of writers like, um, you know, um, Brian Greene, who's one of the world's leading string theorists, but also writes wonderfully accessible, popular books. Um, and, you know, to be honest, if you can put string theory into, um, you know, uh, comprehensible images, you can, you can explain pretty much anything. Um, and I'd love to know the answer of when it began, but I, uh, it's just straightforwardly one of the blind spots of my ignorance. I simply don't know. Um, as I said, my, um, my friend, who, uh, the investor friend, um, dates it as, as a kind of backlash against um, uh, um, you know, sort of the next thing after monetarism, but Alan would know better than me when the, when the turn happened. Um, do you want me to ask Yeah, that I'm or? curious. Um, well, I think what 
there's a long history, basically, that any time there's a period of seeming prosperity and stability for economists, perhaps other people, to think, well, we've got this sorted now, we know how to do this. And you mentioned Keynesianism and monetarism. And really what happened in the 1990s was there was inflation targeting. We gave power to the Bank of England to set interest rates. They had to clearly target consumer prices, retail prices. Um, and that system basically left them completely vulnerable when asset prices start diverging from consumer prices. They haven't got, they've got one t target, retail prices, one instrument, interest rates. And suddenly there's this asset prices going crazy out of control, which their theories, you're right, many of the theories said they can't go out of line, and they were, and they were left a bit bereft. So I think, um, you know, so there's a long history of cycles of people thinking we understand everything after a long period of stability and prosperity, perhaps that's a natural human propensity, and then suddenly the earthquake comes, and suddenly we realise actually we didn't understand as much as we thought. Does that? Does that? Does that okay, but um, perhaps there was. Some, I think there was someone up there. I was going to. Going to. Yeah. Uh, just by the title, Economic Zero Reality One, is uh, this building an appropriate place? You know, to talk about this subject because it's supposed to be one of uh, a powerful institution where we've seen, you know, some very successful people outside uh, coming from here. And uh, my next question is, uh, is really the pursuit of uh, money a bad thing? Uh, you know, what's your personal opinion about it? Okay, I think there was somebody down here. Hey, um, I absolutely agree with your view that economics should be treated as a subject of discourse rather than um, a science which would be quantitative um, because to be to be honest the reality is just too complex to factor into a mathematical model but how do you think the um, economic landscape would change if everyone started thinking of economics as um, not, not a science but something to argue about in everyday life as, as a subject of discourse how would that change um, the problems we have, we're experiencing at the moment. Um, yep, so someone there. Hi, I'm Robert, um, first year economics. Uh, I just wanted to ask, because um, in Korea, I think the power that drives our country is that um, we don't know anything about economics. Um, although you might, you guys might laugh, but um, this actually, I. Um, found it actually pretty useful to not to know economics because um, I went to my friend's place to have a drink and then my father, my friend's father just told me that he got a job because um, government issued a new physical policy of spending I think it was about 200% of GDP or something like that outrageous figures and then he got a new job because of that he was happy he bought me a new drink but what made me worry is that we will have to pay all that back we who work and then he will probably have to pay all the salary he got for the rest of his life. Um, then I realized that maybe just not because he doesn't know the consequences, he doesn't know how dangerous that physical policy is. Maybe that's how our country lives. Um, you don't know how dangerous the virus is, then you can exit the, you can exit through the exit quite carefully, like a fire drill. 
But if you knew, if you knew that fire is really dangerous, then you would panic and just probably die in the fire. Maybe it's better to not know. I mean, in reverse order, I, th I think um, people prefer not to know, that's for sure. Um, as I, and as I say, I think, you know, that lots of people's ideal state of affairs is just, um, you know, let's not think about money. Um, uh, I think the trouble, the trouble is when you, um, you know, it's a bit like credit, as, uh, as, we, as we now call debt. Um, everything can seem virtual and notional, and um, especially as money gets cheap, uh, as if it somehow just it magically exists and you don't have to think about where it comes from. The problem is that the bill is never virtual. The bill is always completely real. And um, it, it's a bit like, um, you know, issue in, in psychology of denial. Um, you know, denial would be fantastic. Denial would be the ideal solution to everything if it worked. You know, because we just completely deny uncomfortable realities. I mean, I'd sign up for that. Um, in, a, in an eye blink, the trouble is that it doesn't work eventually. And I think the same thing issue happens with kind of willfully being uninformed about the, the economic realities, which I think in this country we have been. Um, that, you know, we've now got, um, when we, you're paying more in tax and getting less in services and um, facing, you know, decades of, to excavate yourself from the, that fiscal hole, you know, the, the denial doesn't work anymore, unfortunately. Um, as, as for the subject of the economics nil reality one, it probably isn't appropriate, but it's too late now. And um, on, the, on the thing about how, how the profession would change, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the discourse would be different, the political discourse would be different if it were a bit more informed and if it were... I mean, it's weird how depoliticized economics has been for, for decades, really. Um, you know, the model is so set in concrete um, and it has lots of things that people haven't really thought about because the basic model is that the rich will get richer and that doesn't matter as long as the poor also circumstances also improve. I mean, that's the bargain we've had since Thatcher, 1979. And we haven't actually thought about that. I mean, it's, it's amazing now that New Labour has started to talk about inequality after having been in power for 13 years and haven't seen it rise and having openly endorsed policies which allowed it to rise, that it's suddenly on the agenda. And I think that then we might now see a shift towards some of the underpinning assumptions being um, excavated a bit more and debated and uh, have to think more about what kind of country we want to be. I think that would be the ideal outcome of a kind of um, loosening up of the boundaries between economics and the world. Do you think things would have been different had Lehman not been allowed to fail? Um, someone back there. Hi, I'm a graduate student at the LSE and uh, in defense of the subject, um, granted, economics hasn't necessarily been able to predict uh, any of the, of the financial crises of the last uh, decades, but they've certainly gone, they, they might have increased in frequency, but they've decreased in duration. So if you think of an economist as a doctor, you can't necessarily predict when your patient's going to go ill, but uh, it's fair to say that the tools and the techniques have improved, where the cure certainly can be administered faster. Okay, I think there's someone there who's been waiting rather a long time, actually. <laughs> Hi, Jared Finnegan, uh, MSc student. I'm actually wondering what you would say, Professor Manning, uh, how would you res would respond to some of the critiques raised by Mr. Lanchester, and, and if some of the economic models are changing or the way economists are modeling 
um, the real world, and if any of this, these critiques have kind of penetrated the the uh, institute, inst an, inst an institution like the LSE. Okay. Um, do you want to take your two first while I think of a, a reply? Uh, I think on Lehman. I think the thing about Lehman was. Um, you know, which is obviously the biggest mistake in the history of the world, pretty much. Um, but I think the ideological pressures were so built up. Um, uh, when you look at the kicking Paulson got for um, bailing out for Bear Stearns, and I think it, the, the, you know, obviously the world looks very different now. I think at the time it was such a thing to um, gag on. You know, um, Thomas Mann, the great German novelist, once said that every day you have to swallow a toad, you know, um, first thing in the morning, just so you, that's the most disgusting thing you have to do all day. And I think for uh, Paulson, um, that was just a, a gigantic toad they had to swallow bear stones. And you got so criticised for it, and it so went against the ideological grain, that I think even if they had bailed Le Lehman's out, I think, you know, given that the banks were facing um, crisis, I think at some point they would have allowed one to fail and I think we would be in the same place. The only thing I think we can guarantee with absolute certainty is that one that failed would not have been allowed to be Goldman Sachs. Um, I think the point of, uh, your point about the analogy with medicine, I think, I think that's right. But um, and as, as, I, as I tried to say, I think um, you know, the central bankers deserve credit for having um, fended off a, a proper depression. But you know, referring back to my earlier point, we're not, we're not done yet, I don't think. And also, um, they did it at the cost of um, effectively, you know, breaking the um, uh, the fiscal arrangements of you know several of the world's biggest economies. So, um, the tools and techniques are, you know, equivalent to sort of major surgery. And the trick with medicine, doctors always telling me, is um, prevention is better than cure. I think that would be the ideal state would be to move towards that model. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and just give a very brief answer. I mean, I think there's no doubt that the crisis has changed some aspects of economics. And basically, an important segment of economists would basically have subscribed to the view that markets cannot go wrong. And obviously, that view does not look very sustainable right now, especially about financial with regard to financial markets. Um, but that's never, that was never the totality of economists. And in fact, economists also have a rather developed uh, view of when markets are likely to work well. Because the market system is a remarkable institution that you can walk into a supermarket and just expect to buy whatever it is. And nobody's planned that that thing is going to be there and represents the outcome of thousands of people's little bits of labor making the tin of baked beans, growing the beans. It's an extraordinary system. Um, so economists have a well-developed view of you know, when markets are likely to work well and when they're likely to go, to go wrong. And actually, I think John's book, which I would recommend to you, actually does rather a good job in talking like an economist, perhaps an economist um, you know, capable of talking to the general public like most of us are not. I'm not sure if I'm succeeding now, really. Um, you know, about analysing what went wrong in this particular case and thinking about, um, you know, what we should do about it. And I often think about, um, 
I mean, suppose that we, we, those of you old enough remember the Millennium Bridge in London, which first built it, it wobbles. Uh, so this is obviously a failure of engineering, and the decision was taken, well, we've got to put this right. Personally, I think deciding to put it right was like the Pisa Town Council deciding to straighten the tower, I think. Yeah. Having a wobbly bridge would have been the fanta most fantastic tourist attraction ever, but that's a different point. Um, so you've got to decide, this is a failure of engineering, but you've got to decide this has got to be put right. Um, who are you going to call in to do that? Are you going to call in, you know, say all of engineering is rubbish and just call in members of the general public to, uh, to fix this? You might not want to hire back the specific engineers who designed it in the first place, but I think you'd probably think, in the end, engineers do know something. And now I would say economists know less about bridge build, uh, about the economy than the engineers know about bridge building. Um, but I think there is actually some value um, in the way that economists think about things. And I think actually reading John's book, I, I, I personally ended up being persuaded of that. Can, can I add a thing about that? There was an interesting thing about that, the Wobbly Bridge, was that um, it's a kind of market failure as well, because um, the, the problem with the Wobbly Bridge was, was that it had a very uh, Arab who built it. it. It was under very, very high tension, highest tension of any equivalent footbridge in the world. And um, because of that, it had a very, very, very slight lateral movement. Um, I mean, millimetres, a couple of millimetres. And the effect of the lateral movement was to cause people to walk in step, completely unconsciously. This tiny lateral movement made people start walking in step. And the walking in step is, is the thing that broke the model of the bridge. It caused the oscillation. It's the same thing as that you have on Albert Bridge. There's this sign saying, troops must break rank marching over it. It's a well-known phenomenon. If people walk in step, the bridge does that. But the thing they don't, didn't know about was the tiny lateral movement causing people to do that. But the thing is, lots of engineering firms did know that, it turns out. This is a very striking thing. But the knowledge wasn't public. There wasn't a sort of journal of bridge engineering that people could generally read and they knew. The knowledge was there, but it was proprietary. I always thought there was something very um, striking about that, about um, um, a kind of failure in terms of things that should be generally known and, and aren't because somebody owns them. Okay, I didn't know that. That was very interesting. <laughs> um, any more um, questions do we have? Oh, sorry, yeah. Um. Do you think that if we all shared our knowledge, pulled it together, and then maybe a bit of common sense intervened as well, with um, the economists getting together and actually thinking, well, looking at the past, I think I can see that this isn't true, this isn't true, and getting them all together, having a big, I don't know, massive fight over what's right, what's wrong, as you get a lot of debate, that maybe they could have done a lot better if they had shared their knowledge, pulled their knowledge together. I think it works in some fields. I think the, um, the, the problem is it helps when people agree on the underlying things they're talking about. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not completely sure we have that, you know, as it were, underlying consensus here. But uh, um, you know, uh, there's something to be said for the you know, open argument model of things. Yeah. Uh, just wondered if there's not something fundamentally problematic about any model that posits perpetual growth. Yeah, well as I, as I say in the talk, um, 
uh, we're, we're having to face that fact now, I think, um, that clearly, um, we're, you know, it would be, be a sort of amazing plot twist if that's what happened with capitalism, that actually um, it works very well at everything in terms of growth, and then it turns out we accidentally used up the planet, um, and there's nowhere to go. And in a sense, um, I think, as I, I say in the book, I think, you know, the most deadly antagonist capitalism has ever had is its own success. It's a far greater threat than the Soviet Union ever was. That um, it just, uh, the growth will straightforwardly eat the world. And we, we need a plan B. And I haven't, you know, if, if a plan B is apparent, I, I haven't read it yet. Nick Gribble, City of London dropout. Could you, could you say a word about the, the interface between uh, economics and politics? I mean, the obvious uh, multiple uh, issue, uh, specific issues that, you can, that it can be exemplified by, but taking one, um, I'm just uh, uh, mystified how at, at the, the number, at the figures of, uh, that, uh, of the current U.S. Uh, current deficit and the fact that primarily it's being funded by the, the Chinese. Uh, it's in the trillions of dollars now. And coming back, uh, looking at the UK, um, the, big, the, the, the discussion today was whether or not QE, quantitative easing, should, should continue or should be ceased. But uh, I suppose my question is, uh, A, who's going to continue to buy US Treasuries and UK gilts? You know, Obviously, you can continue to put the, the yield up, the rate of interest, but it, it could well be, come a point if these two currencies, which float, if the buyers of these, particularly you know, the, uh, the, the people in the Far East and perhaps in the Gulf, decide either for economic reasons, because of their um, uh, the profit margin they're seeing on it, or in the, in the case of the Chinese, for geopolitical reasons, for instance, people, people ask me, well, why would the Chinese, it wouldn't be in their interest to stop buying U.S. treasuries, would it? Because then um, the U.S. dollar would fall and what they're holding would be less. But perhaps there'd be an overriding political decision which would irk the Chinese to such an extent they'd say, sod you, America. Or um, it's... Uh, as a, the, the currency is just not, if you're buying bu uh, something which has a, has, a, has a rate of interest promised to you, but the currency keeps dropping, well then you're losing money. So uh, I, to me, people, this could be the next major crisis so, which would involve the politics as well as the economics. Well, I, I'm told, I mean Alan would know better than me, but I don't think there's any precedent for the, this um, really bizarre situation in which two global competitors have a thing where one of them is effectively funding the other one's um, spending. I mean, um, as I say in the book, it kind of gives me the willies to look at. Um, and uh, it's something, I think it's two or three trillion dollars of, of team, I think two, officially two trillion dollars of treasury bills and another trillion dollars in non-governmental sources. Um, the world's never seen anything like it before. And it, uh, I think... Uh, People who know more about it than I do tell me that it's all fine because China can't sell the T-bills. Because um, it's a, a, but in a weird way, it's like the um, 
the Cold War being replayed, but um, instead of mutually assured destruction with nukes, we have mutually assured destruction with, with treasury bills, because um, the Chinese can't sell them. In fact, they can't even stop, stop buying them without trashing their own economy, trashing their own thing. And um, the American economy can't pay for itself without the subsidy of um, you know, the interest rates kept low by the Chinese buying them all up at the existing prices. So um, this is yet another um, uh, version of, um, you know, nobody knows how this one plays out. We've never seen anything like it before. Um, uh, as I say, people who know more than I do are calm about it, but uh, it looks, um, you know, like... Um, uh, it looks like heading for the iceberg from where I'm sitting. Okay, thank you very much. I've got a couple of just quick announcements before uh, we finish. Firstly is that there's a new event that LSE Events are putting on uh, next Wednesday, 10th of February. Uh, Douglas Alexander MP is going to talk about Out of the Bretton Woods, very, very witty, I guess, Out of the Bretton Woods, building a World Bank for the 21st uh, century, and tickets for that are going to be released tomorrow from 1pm. Um, and the second thing is uh, that John's book, which um, I would recommend to you, having read it myself, um, is on sale uh, in the foyer outside. And then if you want to, you can come round this way and he will sign a copy uh, for you. So I'd just like to finish by thanking John very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.